Jag vet inte hur många sällskaper jag har mött som sliter med att få in professionella investorer till trots för att produkten egentligen är ganska bra och sällskapet visar växt och goda tal. Vi ser en ting de proffsiga investorerna på utsikter i tillägg att du bygger ett bra sällskap självklart är hur du hanterar dina aktionärer eller ditt så kallade cap table som det heter på startupsk. Ett ödelagt cap table sätter rätt och slett en stopper för sällskapsutveckling. Unlisted.ai gör det möjligt för sällskaper att hantera aktie- och optionsprogrammer, aktieägarboken, cap table och det mesta av rättigheter in mot aktierna i sällskapet på ett sted. Pröv Unlisted.ai sin gratisversion idag. Hello everyone. And uh, welcome to this uh, Shifter webinar. I've been looking so much uh, forward to this webinar and I can't wait to see both Yara Pauli and Brian Belfort discuss growth. Uh, I think I've seen every YouTube video, read every blog post and listened to every podcast with Brian Belfort. Uh, <laughs> it's out there. And I really love his uh, mix of growth theory with his hands-on practice with it. Being the head of growth at HubSpot, he has a lot of knowledge and practice with, with growing businesses. And now he's the he is the founder and CEO of uh, Reforge, which educates growth specialists around the world. Yara, she was the VP of growth at Skyscanner, and uh, not that she only experienced going from a traditional to a growth organization, but uh, she has also developed this unique dual approach to growth, focusing both on structure and culture, which she calls the growth OS. For the Norwegians out there, she's also a board member and a growth advisor at uh, Colonial I'm not going to talk too much more. So uh, just one small request, uh, please ask questions. Uh, in the chat, you can see a link to uh, Slido. Uh, if you have uh, any questions, well, there are two global growth experts here to help you out, so, so ask them. And without further ado, I will now welcome Yara up on this uh, digital stage to guide you through a conversation with Brian Balfour. So enjoy, and thank you very much. Um, if on one side, there is a clear technological shift that probably is going to be here to stay. On the other, the growth experience by companies that have been positively impacted might not be so stable. So my question for you is, how can we know if the experience growth, uh, extra growth actually will last? Or better rephrased, what is the best approach to capitalize on an expected growth opportunity in your view? Yeah, so if you're lucky to be in like what I would call the extreme tailwinds case, right? Um, there's uh, there's there's a few different questions I would think about. I, I think anything like predicting long term at this point is like incredibly hard. But um, uh, a guy named Bengali Kaba, who's uh, um, works with us at Reforge right now, he was the former head of growth at Instacart and Instagram, um, asked a really good question, like. If if the whole COVID situation ended tomorrow, you know, how many of your users that you've like acquired over the last few months would sustain, right, versus churn? And what he's trying to get at here is um, there's probably a few different groups of people if you're in the extreme tailwinds case. One is what I would call a pull forward effect. Essentially, this is your core target audience uh, that you were building for pre-COVID right? And what the tailwinds have probably done is accelerated some adoption from that group of group of people, people who are kind of like, well, like I know, like, I, I think I want this, but I'm not sure. 
right? Have probably just been pushed over the edge, right? That's great. On the other end of the spectrum, there's this other group of people where this totally new unintended audience, people that you weren't really building for pre-COVID, but are using your product because they're essentially like forced into it because of the situation. Um, and so the easiest example of this, you mentioned a lot about education, right? A lot of teachers being forced to use Zoom and teach classes, right? Zoom was not built for that necessarily originally, especially for like K through 12 uh, type of education. So, um, so you probably have that group too. But then there's this middle group in the middle that's kind of like what we would call your marginal audience. So this isn't this isn't a group that's like two steps away from what you were building for, but there were people that are were like right on the edge of uh, who you were building for pre-COVID. And um and so these are people where your solution was kind of a fit before for them, but now like they're, you know, they're getting over the friction of using your product in you and your solution uh, just because like the environment around them and the pain points have been like amplified. So the key is actually what you want to do is, is because you can't really tell the future, right? Um, it's probably a waste of time to focus on that group, that unintended audience. Those people that you have just not built for, they're kind of like two hops away from your core use case that you're solving for right now. Because um, if you spend a lot of time, your, your chances of them retaining kind of post all of this is pretty minimal, right? And you're probably dealing with limited, tons of limited startups, limited resources, limited time, limited people, you know, limited money. And so your highest ROI, that your return on investment area is definitely going to be that marginal audience, right? The people that were just kind of like one step away removed. So who would be an example of, uh, of that, right? Like, so going back to the Zoom example, those would probably be like employees or companies that pre-COVID had physical offices, but are now like either fully or partially remote. So they weren't in the core audience before, but they are now like on that periphery of that core audience. And so how do you identify like that group of people and focus your limited time and resources on making sure like you would, you lock in their habit essentially, right? Um, and so what that means is essentially you're going to ignore part of your user base and that's fine, right? Like focus is like the key here is like how, where, where can you focus your time and maintain um, some of those tailwinds after, like, as these things continue to change and continue to shift. Um, and so that's kind of how we think about that extreme, um, that extreme tailwinds group. And, uh, and so there's a lot of ways to identify your marginal audience. It's kind of different depending on the product. Happy to go into that. But that's kind of how I think about those groups of users within the tailwind categories. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think he gave some insights for our audience in terms of how to, to think about uh, these, uh, this marginal group of customers. So I guess in this time, obviously, of uh, data completely messed, right? Even if you can identify these marginal customers and groups, there probably needs to be an adjustment from the founders of a startup in terms of how they use data versus how they use let's say what would be typically called their founder intuition, right? To navigate through the, the sea of uncertainty. Um, so even when you think about how to retain or monetize these unexpected new customer segments, what 
Could you give us a suggestion in terms of parameters to keep in mind uh, when deciding to to work and how to work on this? Uh, let's let's call it new persona or marginal customers. Yeah, well, most data at this point is going to be lagging, right? So, like certainly revenue data, retention data, churn data, a bunch of it's going to be very uh, is. It's just going to be a lagging indicator. So no matter if you're experiencing extreme tailwinds, headwinds, or you're kind of like in the middle, you basically have to just be staying close to the customer as much as possible. I know everybody says that, right? Like, of course, everybody's like, oh, you just talk to your customers, you talk to your customers. But the reality is, it's like, are, are you really like, are you talking to at least two to three customers per day? Because like those data points and those conversations are going to get at what is like the underlying things. Like how, how are the habits and the motivations and the pain points of those people changing um, as we kind of shift out of this initial shock into a new normal and whatever kind of like changes hit next. And, um, and so, um, and so, you know, the, the concept of like founder intuition, like the, the first way I heard that term was from Andy Johns who worked on growth at Wealthfront and core and other stuff is like, you know, initially founders are forced to talk to customers in the early days, this intuition kind of react and build against that intuition because they don't have a lot of customers and they're trying to move fast and all that kind of stuff. But as we grow and grow and grow founders and those leaders tend to get farther and farther away from those customer conversations. And so this is now really a time to like get back really close to those customer conversations as much as you possibly can, because you're going to have to make very quick decisions based on impartial information. You can't wait for the data or any of that. And so um, so those leaders, the leaders in the company need to be incredibly close to those conversations to be able to make those quick adjustments here. So this is definitely a time for speed over, over perfection. Um, and um, and like quick adjustments based off of a lot of like a few kind of qualitative um, conversations. As things kind of you know get on and it feels like the volatility of behaviors and all that kind of stuff isn't changing, then we can kind of like slowly wean ourselves away from this. But you know, for example, at Reforge, like I'm just making sure that I at least have a couple customer conversations per day. Um, as well as we're kind of like looking at trying to look at some leading indicator for like um, the rest of the year. But that leading indicator data is just like, it's so noisy and it's so unpredictable about like what's going to actually happen. And so for us, at least at Reforge, it's more like, well, what's happening to your education budgets at your company? Are, how are you thinking about like, what are you work Like all of our programs are very like uh, business problem focused. So like retention, engagement, monetization, experimentation. Well, guess what? Like, Nobody's really thinking about experimentation right now as systems, right? Like that's just not a business problem. That that business problem went from, you know, uh, top of the list for everybody down to the bottom of the list because it's just like any experiment data at this moment, right? So those are the types of things like at least I'm personally doing as a founder is to like try to get a sense of so that we can make some decisions of like, well, guess what? Our experimentation program is probably not going to um, have as much demand this fall as the other, but we're hearing needs in this area. We're hearing um, professional but education budgets disappearing from this segment of users. That gives us way more interesting information for us to actually act on than um, than like looking at like aggregated data. So, so do you think, in this sense, that there will be a potentially new emerging trend for, uh, let's say, a, a job perspective onto qualitative research, UX research over the more traditional exper- experimentation that is dictated by this new need? 
I don't think it's a long-term shift. I mean, I think like the the place has always been to for people to know how to marry quali- qualitative data with quantitative data. Unfortunately, that's just like not the way it's taught, right? Uh, it's tend you tend to be be taught like one or the other, or people kind of you know just like their natural skills kind of lean towards one of the one or the other. And so I don't think this is like a long-term shift by um by any means. I think having that that mixture of skill sets of how knowing how to marry those two, when to use what and um and how to do that is really uh is going to be really important. I, I just find that like both of these areas, like how to use qualitative and quantitative information is one of these areas that we all tend to grossly overestimate our own skills in, um, like, like if I look back to myself, like, I don't know, five, 10 years ago, you know, back then I'd probably would have given myself an eight out of 10, but I now realize I was like a two or a three out of 10, right? It's just one of those things that we just tend to grossly overestimate, but there's so much depth in how to do this, right? Like how to synthesize qualitative information into into customer insights, how to validate that with quantity, like all of these things. And so, um, so I don't think it's a long-term shift. I think like whether you're a marketer, a product person, a growth person, whatever it is, these are like, these are like one of the areas where I don't think you can ever stop learning because as I've gone on, there's just more and more and more and more depth on those like types of those types of skill sets uh, for sure. I think in the short term, at least from the U.S., I haven't actually looked at the international data. Maybe you have Yara, but I've looked at like the layoff data. Who's who's like getting laid off and um, where teams are cutting. And certainly, there's been a um, a higher hit to uh, marketing and sales groups versus uh, product and engineering. That's pretty consistent with um, past recessions uh, as well. Um, but it's not as large as past, re- as like past recessions that the Delta between how the Delta between like marketing and sales and product and engineering. I don't know exactly why, but I would say like that's actually pretty normal for a, a recession versus an indicator of like some massive like long term change. Just companies need to cut quick budget wherever they can, like in paid marketing and and um and, and that and that type of stuff. But I think you know all of that's going to come back. And so if you're unfortunately in that category of people who have been laid off, now's the time to think about well, like what are those really hard um skill sets that help differentiate me as a as a professional that depends on your function marketing like things like more of the technical side of things help kind of uh, differentiate you there's there's all it really we can kind of go through the functions and and think about that but um but those are some of the trends i've seen so far and and i think it's just um you know it's a short-term change and and uh, we'll see a lot of this uh stuff come back but as usual all this stuff is always evolving and changing and you need to evolve and change with that yeah, absolutely. I think uh, we will need to see the upcoming months how this uh, shapes up. Uh, b- but I think one uh, constant amongst this variable uh, may be uh, amongst companies that are, let's say, losing out from the pandemic or uh, that are positively impacted uh, is uh, the difficulty that uh, I'm hearing from, let's say, my customer, right, uh, in terms of uh, focusing for two reasons. So obviously one is um, more psychologically 
a psychological, sorry, and it's really related to the tiredness that comes with this contest, no? the uncertainty, the level of anxiety, the stress that comes with the unknown. And on the other side, especially if we look at the positively impacted companies, uh, what I'm seeing is that uh, obviously uh, you are to one extent, gifted with lots of new growth opportunities, new types of customers. So even if you've got a good, strong methodology to filter out, you know, what are the marginal customers, they, they, they're the one in the middle that you should retain and keep and work on, it is really, really difficult to prioritize and to choose where to focus on. Um, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm sure you, you have experienced the same uh, across the, uh, all your network. Is there any recommendation or framework that you could uh, suggest in terms of how to rethink prioritization in this moment? Yeah, I think it's a good observation, right? And this is like a general trend among all companies, right? Like the more success you see, the more opportunities flow your way in terms of like ideas, customer requests, partner requests, right? Like all of these types of things. But the general rule, right, is like, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it, <laughs> you know? And this is this is like one of those things that is just so hard to stay away from. It's just so hard to stay away from. And so um, on the other end, right, the, those with the extreme the headwinds, right, kind of have like, uh, I'm not saying you're lucky to be in the headwinds case, but it, to some extent, you've been gifted constraints. And so I think a lot of people in that, in, in that kind of category have uh, um, what's really important and what's focused becomes a little bit more obvious. But yeah, in the tailwinds case, basically that success and those opportunities flowing to you have just been like totally accelerated and probably a bunch of them have been dumped on you. And so um, this is probably a, this is kind of the, the prioritization is an art. I think a lot of people want to use like the ice framework, impact, confidence, um, effort, uh, like have it spit out a number and just take the stuff off of the top of the list. But, um, the more I've, the more I've seen teams use the ice framework, the more, uh, detrimental I, I think it, it becomes because the problem is, is it lacks all kind of strategic context. And so, so, uh, so now is the time than ever to have a stronger point of view around like what your like two to three year strategy is. Maybe some of those things have been accelerated, but it's not like all of them have been accelerated because for example, there are, you know, something might appear at the top of the ice framework, but um, uh, there's a difference between things that fit your differentiation, right? Like you're differentiating your product or your customer segment in some way, shape or form. And so, something that on the ice framework that spits out a nine that fits your differentiation actually over the long term will return much greater amount of things to you, but are really hard to measure. Like you can't like really measure that in the ice framework versus something that's also like a nine or whatever score of the ice framework spits out that is more of like, um, just like, a just like a, a, you know, what uh, this VC Tom Tongas calls a minimum market requirement, something that's not really differentiated uh, for you. And um, it's just kind of like a base level feature. Uh, that thing is not going to return as much to you um, over time. But but that strategic context is like really hard to, um, is, is really hard to measure uh, uh, and take into account. So this is part of the art of prioritization, whether you're on the product or marketing side that you have to take in that strategic context as well. So now is a time of like, I would be um, more than ever trying to 
invest in uh, in basically diff like two areas if I'm taking on new stuff, anything that fits like the differentiation category or um, accelerating essentially what I would call like what we would call like an adjacent use case for that marginal audience. So going back to that marginal audience concept, they might have a slightly different use case for your product than, than your um, other product. Um, and you can think about it as like a layer of concentric circles. So like if your core use case is at the center, then there's another layer, another layer, another layer. And so having a strong strategic point of view on like, what is what are those layers? What is the right order of operations uh, to like reach and how to like sequence those things? I would probably invest like accelerating that like next layer of the concentric one or two layers of the concentric circle. But the mistakes will be made in um, trying to accelerate things that are like once again three hops out or like kind of just farther from where you're at uh, today. People overestimate how much they might know about that new audience or that new product or that new adjacent use case or that new marketing channel, and um, and uh, it's just um, yeah, th- th- that's kind of like the big that's kind of like the big trap. Once again, opportunities will flow your way the more successful you are, which just means like the more strict you have to get on what your strategic point of view is and what your differentiation and, and what your sequence of um, how, how you're going to expand into adjacent markets and products. Jeg vet ikke hvor mange selskaper jeg har møtt som sliter med å få inn professionella investorer til tross for at produktet egentlig er ganske bra og selskapet viser vekst og gode tal. Hvis det er en ting de proffe investorene er på utsikkerheter, i tillegg til at du bygger et bra selskap selvfølgelig, er hvordan du håndterer dine aksjonærer eller ditt såkalte cap table, som det heter på startupsk. Et ødelagt cap table setter rett og slett en stopper for selskapsutvikling. Unlisted.ai gjør det mulig for selskaper å håndtere aksje- og opsjonprogrammer, aksjeeierboken, CapTable og det meste av rettigheter inn mot aksjene i selskapet på ett sted. Prøv Unlisted.ai sin gratisasjon i dag. Yeah, I I agree with everything you say, and I think that in this moment, you know, even more, it's important to force probably your, your people uh, to think in... Uh, what I would call logarithmic prioritization terms versus a linear uh, traditional thinking so that you can try to find that differences between, you know, a priority number one, number two, and number three, even given obviously the uncertain context in in which you live. Um, On the other side, I wanted to talk uh, about uh, being uh, innovative Uh, in general, terms and obviously in usual times being innovative is a precondition of being resilient uh, because innovative businesses tend to constantly and continuously anticipate and adjust to a broad range of crises. However, um, these businesses, let's say, that they cannot always recognize and adjust fast enough especially to the actual threats that a potential crisis like this one uh, entails for them. And the majority of startups, uh, let's say that they couldn't be, and they were certainly not prepared for the events of the last four months. So we can see cases across hospitality and travel that are probably two of the biggest industries impacted negatively by the COVID-19, obviously due to travel cancellation, restaurants and bar closures, and uh, low customer confidence. Uh, on the other side, we also have businesses like manufacturing, construction, that also suffer the decrease in consumer demand. 
Um, in your opinion, how does a resilient growth strategy look like? Uh, what are the core aspects that we can pay attention to um, and the fundamental things, basically, that we need to do to adjust our growth strategy? Yeah, so I always like to try to just think in in like as simple principles as possible. And so I think one of the things I commonly think about is, you know, a lot of building um, a good product and growing and retaining users is just about how do you basically build and engage, sorry, build and deepen habits um, over time. So your, your user is building a habit of using your product to solve like some problem. And so if you know the science of like habit building around like um, motivations and um, frequency of problems and, and rewards and all that kind of stuff, um, those principles really help. And so I think in this case, what is different is that um, these habits have been fundamentally broken right for people like in the travel or real estate or even like restaurant space so all, like all those kind of uh, spaces that you've mentioned and so there's a big question about okay well as starts as stuff starts to come back right like what what habits are have only been temporarily changed right and will come back in what order right so like uh um you know like Skyscanner, like a travel company, there's a bunch of use cases around personal travel, local travel, international travel, business travel, right? And so like, in what order are those going to come back and at like, at what pace? But third is like, what habits have probably been fundamentally altered, right? And fundamentally changed. And so if I was in this group, like I would probably split my team into like two different, well, first you're, you're probably massively cutting, Right. <laughs> right. Like that's an unfortunate part. Yeah. And that's a part of being resilient, right? Is that you need to, you basically need to cut way back in order to um, have the opportunity and the time frame to essentially rebuild. But then the question is like, how do I focus my team? There's probably two areas of focus. There's a team focused on identifying all of those use cases, the habits around them, what order we think they're going to come back in, and how much work we need to do to reestablish the habit. Because people aren't just going to come back and just magically reestablish the habit with your products, right? Habits are really hard to build. They take time, tons of reinforcement. Um, and just think about like new products that you've used and how, like, how many... The ones that you've established a habit with, how long did it take? And, and all of, for every product you did establish a habit with, how many you didn't, right? Um, just to give you like a sense of that. So, um, so there's one group there, but the second group is focused on identifying those groups of people and use cases that where the, the habit has been fundamentally altered and changed. And there we basically have to, uh, if you want to adapt over the long term, now you got to start thinking about moving into an entirely new uh, like use case and building an entirely new use case. So for example, two US companies, may, I, I actually, I don't know if, how much international presence they have, but ClassPass is like a membership to a bunch of studios like yoga studios and gyms and all of that kind of stuff. And of course, they've been completely wiped out. Um, like their business has been completely wiped out. Um, and so an alternative that people have shifted to if you are a ClassPass member is buying a Peloton bike, um, which here in the US costs a couple thousand dollars, right? And so there's a segment of users 
on class that were pre on class pass that have now bought a Peloton bike and established the habit with that alternative. Now, the question there is like, if somebody spent $2,000 on a Peloton bike and established the habit on that product, what are the chances that as these studios come open up, that they're going to return to being a ClassPass member? Probably slim to none, right? And so here's a case, here's a case where it's like, look, if Peloton or sorry, if ClassPass wants to strategically try to think about how to get those customers back, they have to establish a whole new use case for their product. I don't know, maybe they build a product for those yoga teachers uh, to like start a virtual yoga studio and they give them all like the tools and like the payments and like all that kind of stuff, right? That might be an idea of like building a new product to serve that new use case. So the resilience is like, once again, like how do you contract back? And then how do you establish an order of operations to reestablish health in the business by identifying once again and thinking about all of these use cases and audiences about, well, like what has changed in their habits? Like how how fast are, do I intend this use case to come back? How easy is it going to be for them to reestablish the habit? And making sure that you stay away from or just fundamentally change your strategy around those that probably establish an alternative around, um, have probably established an alternative around a pretty solid um, alternative. And it's going to be impossible to rebuild the habit with them on your pre-existing product. Um, so that's how I think about it. If I was in one of those cases and I don't, um, you know, um, I feel it's very unfortunate if, if your product is in one of those is, is in one of those use cases, cause it's, it's a really tough job. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what you said made me think about, uh, the topic we were touching, uh, before around focus, right? Probably these, uh, reassessing completely in the way of looking at churn user basically and uh, forming a habit uh, puts a new focus for the teams in terms of how to uh, re-engage and reactivate users and therefore how to rebuild also the user flow and all obviously the engagement channels and communication channels that go with it. Um, Have you seen any uh, companies out there that have been able to react fast enough or well uh, in this sense, amongst the ones that were negatively impacted? No, I mean, not yet. I mean, I think the, I think the real winners are going out of that group are going to be determined in like the next couple months. Because I think the first couple months was essentially just like um, basically rebuilding the strategy from the, <laughs> the ground up. Cutting, yeah. the, cutting the team members, reestablishing the priorities, starting to work on those new priorities. I think we're just starting to see some of these use cases uh, like come back for these companies. And so um, I think we'll, uh, we'll start to see that basically in like the next 60 days. I think you'll see companies in these categories either start to launch new products, new campaigns um, to like start to win back some of these like early use cases. And, um, yeah, we'll like, we'll find out. And so I think one of the, the brutal messages is, is that like, if the past three months has felt exhausting because it has been exhausting, but like the real work is kind of just beginning. And like, I don't, I don't say that to drive like fear because like, that's the last thing we need right now is more fear, just more of a like brutally honest like take that the real work is just beginning on um, kind of off like how we move forward. 
Yeah, th- this leads me to my next question, actually, because uh, you raised a very good point that we're just at the beginning and uh, so many people feel exhausted already right now. So I, I would be tempted to think that uh, um, the role of, you know, a company culture uh, and how a company establishes that culture might have a significant positive or negative impact in supporting people through this transition and obviously dealing with their exhaustion levels. Um, in your opinion, is there a best growth culture in general and in particular for a period like this? I don't know. If there's never like a best. Well, so let me first maybe talk a little bit about how I think about culture and then kind of we can talk a little bit about this times is that um, there is no best culture because a culture is kind of like a personality. And, um, and so uh, there's the best cultures are ones that um, it's kind of like a good marketing strategy in the sense that you are building, you are building a culture and a personality around your company that is uh, opinionated in the sense that you know, there's a group of people out there who are going to love it and they're going to fit. And when you, and because you've built that culture, you're going to just like be able to reach those people and those in, and the, and the bonds internally are going to, it's going to be much better. But that also means that there's a group of people who are going to hate it. Right. Um, and, um, the worst cultures are the ones that tried to fit in the middle, right. And appeal to everybody. Cause when you try to appeal to everybody, you appeal to nobody, right? Like, basic marketing type, type of principle. And so there's different principles, there's different cultures that are built for better markets. Like even at HubSpot, we had a very strong culture was very opinionated, very kind of grounded. And definitely it wasn't a fit for, it was not a fit for everybody. Certainly. Um, and, but it also appealed to a very certain segment of, of people at the same time. And so like, that's what you're going for. And you can even see this in the contrast of like Uber versus Lyft. And, you know, um, of course, there are a ton of people who hated Uber's culture, right? But there was actually a group of people who loved just like the ruthless competitiveness of that culture, who really thrived on it. Um, And also on the Lyft side, right? There's people who loved kind of like that softer kind of culture internally, more about more family, right? But there's also people who hated it, right? So both of them actually have good cultures because they're opinionated uh, and specific. I think in this times, right, um, it's probably um, more clear to uh, more clear to understand like a couple things. I think, you know, certainly things around like employee exhaustion and stuff, like we've given um, uh, our team like a bunch of like extra time off, um, certainly like those types of things. But I think the bigger shift for the cultures internally we're going are going to be like, uh, what is, um, you know, what elements of our culture kind of historically uh, give us an advantage in this time in which elements um, are a bit of a disadvantage and we need to uh, shift more um, aggressively. So for example, here at Reforge, we very much believe in like kind of bottoms up um, sort of leadership in the sense that ideas kind of bottoms up. We try to clarify goals and um, and have people kind of work within those goals. Um, but given given the shock of the change and everything, we had to change our 
style to being way more directive from tops down because we had to change at a much faster pace. And to, have, to change at a much faster pace, we had to keep the conversations to a much smaller group of people, make quick decisions, and then kind of communicate those top down. So what we did is like we just, one, we communicated very clearly, hey, we are shifting to this style. Here is why we're shifting to this style to make sure that everybody knows that um, of like why we're doing it and um, and kind of like get everybody on board. But the second thing is like, this is temporary. At some point we will return kind of to our older principles and stuff when we feel like um, it's like appropriate to do so. But the health of the company kind of comes first because if we don't keep the company healthy, we can't provide opportunities for any employees and um, uh, in like all of those different factors. So um and so at some point we will change that. And so I think you need to identify those things and basically change them, um, but communicate them, but also recognize that this is probably a temporary change for you uh, and communicate that as well and kind of shift back um, over time. So certainly in times like this, speed of quick decisions, more communication, uh, like way more communication is better. Um understanding like where you need to like get aggressive and in, in your strategy like things like that are just all things that at least that we've thought about um we we had to think through at reforge specifically with uh specifically with all alt culture but like i said a good culture is different by design right so this this answer is going to change for everybody absolutely thanks a lot i think that was very inspiring and very helpful for a lot of companies that are going obviously through high level of exhaustion at the moment, and they can learn from, from, from you and how you handle that every forge. Well, so far, we have spoken about the undoings, let's say, related to growth and how to rethink about our growth uh, in, in a specific disruptive time like uh, the one that we're living right now. But uh, I would say that even out of disruptive times, there are some disruptive learnings about growth and how uh, to grow your startup in a smarter, better, faster way. Um, could you share um, the most counterintuitive learnings about growth that you experienced? So I think the most counterintuitive thing is like, um, uh, I just call it the opposite rule, right? Like if everybody's doing one thing, um, there's probably an opposite to it uh, that that there's like a segment of customers that it's going to greatly appeal to. So if everybody's kind of saying and doing like one thing, it's really important to like recognize that and then explore, explore like what would be opposite. So certainly early on, like early at Reforge, for example, we, um, everybody in the education space, it was like, it's like low priced. And it was kind of like, you're going to get this magical result in a very short period of, of time. Right. Uh, and um, lots of discounting on like Udemy and just like all of these like different promises. And we actually did the exact opposite. Like we ended up doing the exact opposite, which was we priced high. We told people that, hey, this isn't going to be easy. This is actually going to take a lot of your time and you get out what you put in. Um, we didn't overpromise. We didn't promise like any magical results, right? Like we were very, we kind of like tried to underpromise, overdeliver. Um, and so we added a bunch of friction, like not everybody got accepted. Uh, like we did all of these things that were opposite and, um, it helped us really kind of spark kind of our like initial stages. And, and so this kind of is true for anybody, 
um, like anybody in anything in the space is that there tends to be, everybody tends to kind of uh, like look at each other and it like acts as this gravitational force, right? Like it's the same in all things, like even design, like there's been all of these memes about how every design of a SaaS company has merged to the same look and style of like the character images of people, right? Like Slack has it, Intercom has it, like all these companies have it. But it same goes with like marketing and growth, right? Uh, is that everybody tends to like be looking at each other and like be pulled into this gravitational like force. And so it's good to like recognize all of those things. But the question is, is like, how do you flip it on its head? Right. And how do you like do the, and how do you like do the exact opposite? How do you say the exact opposite? And, um, and you're much more likely to kind of break through the noise, um, uh, like by doing that. I even did that like with my blog in my early days, most people were writing really short posts, I then started writing really long ones. <laughs> they took off. I remember now, those. <laughs> yeah. Now everybody's writing really long ones. And now I'm like, well, what the hell do I do? Do I go back to the short posts? Like, yeah. I actually don't know now, right? Uh, so um, there's probably some other some other opposite there that um, I can think through. But that's kind of like my big one that um, I always think through. Um, the um, other one is just like... Uh, so we actually talked about it, which is just like around like fundamentals. So I think in like, especially in chaotic times like this, uh, if you're in the tailwinds group, once again, you're getting all these opportunities thrown at you. If you're in the headwinds group, you're just like, oh my God, I don't know what to, I don't know what to do. If you're somewhere in the middle, that means that you probably have some customers having headwinds, some customers having tailwinds, right? So like you're all over the place, right? And so this is the time to just revert to soup, like very basics and very like fundamentals. So like going back to what we were talking about earlier, if you're thinking about retention, you just think about habit building, right? Who, like where have the habits been broken? Why have they been broken? With who, right? Answering those types of basic questions are going to shine the light on like what you should actually do versus kind of looking at like all of this external data has been, is being published around what's happening on Facebook CPMs and, you know, indexes on churn and acquisition. That shit's not going to help you. Like, like those are like averages of the market that has no meaning on your business whatsoever. The only thing that has meaning on your business is like that bottoms up what is happening with your customers, right? That's all, that's all, that, that's all that matters, right? And so if you go and answer those if you go and answer those questions, I think you're going to find much more clarity on on what to do um, in a much faster pace. And so, um, once again, like like in complicated times, we tend to overcomplicate things. And the, actually, the right thing to do is just like revert to revert to the basics, revert to like revert to like just like the very simple things, the very simple questions. And that once again is going to shine sort of the path um, that's going to shine the path forward. It'll be interesting going forward. I think like I see like a lot of questions around our new platforms, new channels going to emerge from this. It's possible, right? Um, It's definitely possible, but I don't think it's happened yet, right? We'll see if like video platforms like Zoom and stuff open up a little bit. Um, obviously they have way more usage than they used to do. So building and off of that, like use case and that platform starts to become more, um, starts to become a little bit more interesting, but, um, I don't know yet. I don't know if we've seen like fundamental changes, uh, in that yet we've seen the more fundamental changes just in like the motivations, the behaviors and the habits of how people act and behave and 
what they care about. And like, that's where kind of the center of the learnings are. Thanks for sharing uh, your opinion on this. I think uh, it, it was uh, uh, very highlighting, you know, the, 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 the possibilities that we, we got in terms of how to interpret this. Mm, I have actually one uh, more question before moving to take the questions that uh, the audience has shared on Slido. Um, so many business cases, uh, amongst which, let's say, Uber or the rework of the situation, have renewed the emphasis on uh, the importance of early good monetization frameworks and especially profitability. And uh, the debated fact that fictitious growth matters more than the actual profit, uh, that was basically such a hot topic at the end of last year, uh, in my opinion, uncovered under a different light uh, the difficult balancing act between growth and profitability. Is there, in uh, your experience, a best approach and time to monetize your product while also being able to grow your user base to gain significant market share? Um, yeah, just like anything, no, there isn't a best approach. It kind of depends on your situation. It, to me, like we can, it's, this is a nuanced conversation, but I would try to simplify it down to two different questions. One is, um, is uh, are you playing for a network effect or not? Um, if you are, then ten, the, the, the thing that is the right thing to do typically is to basically, is to actually grow at almost all, grow at almost all costs and make sure you establish that network, uh, that maybe make sure you're the first to establish that network effect. Now, the problems come in is like people think they're working towards a network effect when they, when they really aren't, or the network effect isn't as strong as they thought it was, right? Like that's what happened with Uber and Lyft. They didn't real, they initially didn't realize that the network effect was pretty um, asymptotic, right? In terms of like some of drivers and riders. And of course that network effect has been completely blown up for them <laughs> in this time. And so they even have a harder problem of like, they're going to have to reestablish the network effect, right? Which is a very expensive thing, expensive thing to do. Absolutely. And so, so in that case, it is in, if you are not, if you are not in that category, um, uh, do you have a network effect? Then this is a tricky question, right? Which is, uh, there's, um, there's, it's, you, you shouldn't be growing at all costs, but there's, there's basically like your monetization can act as like a, a break or an accelerator, right? Cause like your monetization model essentially is friction as you raise price, um, or do other things, right? You're putting more friction on your, more friction on your growth. It's going to like, it's going to slow down versus like you loosen those things. It's, it's going to like, in, it's going to increase growth through like more acquisition and more in more retention. There are some counterintuitive places like luxury products and stuff like that, that that's actually not true, but let me put those aside for a second. But you've got to think of like the core loop of any, of growth of any company is that you, uh, essentially grow because of that growth, you're able to attract more resources, like more people and more money, um, through funding. And then you're able to take those resources and invest in solving new problems that then leads to more growth. Right. And so, so there's a tricky balance here, which is like, 
Well, the companies that slow down on growth, right, this loop starts to work in, in a negative way, which is like, well, you have a harder time attracting more people and more resources, which means you don't solve new problems as fast enough, which leads to slower growth, right? Like it works in like a negative way. And so this ends up being a, this, so this ends up being like a, a really tricky balancing act for a lot of companies that I don't think a lot of companies actually end up realizing. Uh, and um, because there's situations where like you could grow at all costs right now, but um, you actually don't give yourself the time to like start solving new problems, new use case, and then you start to flatten out. And then once your growth flattens out, it's actually, you end up in that, like that negative loop, that negative loop cycle. And so what founders have to do is play this tricky balance of thinking about, um, of thinking about, well, how do I like maintain this loop in a positive direction? Um, and so there's probably times in a company where it's better to, uh, it's better to monetize more heavily and, um, and, uh, it'll probably slow top of growth, or there's probably times that it's okay to like have lower margins and do the opposite as long as you have a path to like how, how those like, uh, how those things happen. And so this is, it's like a tricky balance. And that's why I think this conversation is not, uh, I think a lot of people like to put out opinionated statements in one direction or the other, but it really kind of comes down to the company, the stage that the stage that they're at, where they're at in this like core growth loop, network effect, no network effect, right? And um, and those are these are just like some of the just overall business strategy decisions you need to make. Yeah, I, I think you know the suggestion of thinking in terms of core growth loops and being able to visualize and understand your dynamics is already a good starting point for someone that obviously hasn't done that so far, right? Um, okay, so I would like to probably give some time to the listeners, and uh, I'm gonna pick the question from uh, Slido, uh, guys and girls. So uh, I'll be democratic and choose the ones that have been posted uh, the most. Um, so we have someone asking, um, Brian, could you expand on what could be some of the technical skills you'd advise to a growth professional with a marketing background? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this depends. Like, um, I think, uh, well, there's like a spectrum of things. And so like... Um, so, and it depends like where you're at on the spectrum already. So like, let's say like you have like zero technical skills, like whatsoever, but you're like a great marketer, you know how to copyright and position and like all that kind of stuff, right? The first thing I would probably do is get super familiar with like all the no code tools, right? Like that's like a, like a step in the right direction and starts to enable you to be a little bit more self, uh, like a little bit more self-sufficient, than you otherwise would. So Airtable, Webflow, um, like all of these types of things. And actually doing that is going to uh, lead you to dipping your toe in the water of like the actual technical details. Because what you'll probably end up learning about by using those tools is like um, just things like uh, just like APIs and basic CSS and Webflow and um, and um, uh uh, I was going to say, what was the other thing I was going to say with Zapier? Oh, like just like things like if then statements and like all that kind of stuff. Then the next step is to basically uh, in those tools, like there tends to be like more advanced use cases, like in a tool like Zapier, you can do some even more advanced stuff with like um, with JavaScript and uh, like by knowing like a little bit of JavaScript, a little bit of like SQL, right? And so I would probably then dip my toe 
into those, those types of things. And then sitting on the other end of the spectrum, the most um, probably useful tools, tools in your tool belt will be uh, like essentially SQL and, you know, like basically some like front end code, like HTML and CSS. Uh, those are like probably the, those are probably like kind of like the spectrum of things that I would start to go down as like a more technically enabled marketer. But I'll say this with a very huge asterisk. Problems first, skills second. Meaning the way that you advance in your career is by identifying and solving meaningful problems for you and your company and projects, right? You do not advance in your career by just going and collecting certificates or like taking a skills course outside of the context of the problem and then doing nothing with those skills, right? Also, you tend to learn the skill much better when you're learning that skill within the context of a problem that is meaningful to you, right? So before you even identify, you know, these skills, I would first identify a problem that's meaningful to you um, and your company, and then try to solve that problem within the context of like taking the next step in your technical in your technical journey, um, like on this, uh, like on this spectrum. Last but not least, just learn how to talk to engineers. Like seriously, like if you're able to influence engineers and know how to talk to them and know how to think about like what's on their roadmap, what might be difficult, all that kind of stuff. Oh, like that goes a massive, massive way on, um, on all of this. Great. Thank you, Brian. I'm not sure if we have time for one more quick question. Uh, cause I think yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So I'm going to pick one, uh, not because it's the most voted, but I think it's very relevant for what's happening uh, in the world uh, with the Black Leaves Matter. And uh, we got a question from Gerardo Forliano. Uh, he's working as a growth manager at a company called Key Odiapaga. It translated like who hates pays, basically. It's a legal tech against online hate. He's asking, uh, according to you, which channels could be great to attract victims of cybercrime? Any hmm. suggestion? So this is a great one just to once again return to first principles, right? I would start talking to prior victims of cybercrimes. Tell me about the moment you realized that you were a victim of a cybercrime. What did you do next? What did you do after that? Who did you talk to? Oh, you went to Google? What did you type in, right? And I would just walk through, um, I would try to like walk, you know, uh, get them to state the experience and then try to get them to walk through like step-by-step step in like a detailed way and build a map. And what that's going to do is it's going to, uh, a map is going to emerge very quickly of like, what do they do? Who do they talk to? What did they search? What did they find? What did they look for that they couldn't find, right? And they couldn't find like super easily, like just like all of these things. It's not going to even just give you like, uh, this exercise is not just going to give you ideas about channels, but it's going to give you ideas about the messages that you need to hit, the unmet needs, right? Um, content that you can build, um, all of like all of these different um, like all of these different factors. It's hard for me to put myself in somebody's shoes and spit out the channels for you because I've luckily never been, you know, uh, a victim of like a cybercrime. So, um, so it's hard. You know, it's once again it's hard for me to like spit out the channels. But I imagine there is some sequence of events of 
of like seeking out content on, on Google advice, talking to like a few close friends about it. Um, like all those types of things that you'll start to like super quickly identify and you can start to build, um, you can start to build a strategy against. Thank you very much, Brian. I think we're actually out of time now. And uh, well, I wanted to thank you so much on behalf of all the audience and of course also Shifter for being with us today. Uh, you shared tons of valuable insights and uh, suggestions for how to deal with the, the current context, but also in general, now how to frame the thinking around growth. And I'm sure, you know, people can find more on your blog at brianbalfour.com and on Reforge if they want to learn more. So thanks again. It's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you. Uh, and good luck to everybody out there. Uh, I know everybody is like managing through the chaos. And so um, anyways, just, I just wanted to wish everybody good luck. Kind of looking forward to seeing everybody's um, like hard work through this. Great. Thank you all and have a lovely evening. Goodbye.